This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. The Fed holding rates near zero, no change in the bond buying pace, but this was widely expected. Here we are just two days after election 2020. Let's talk a little bit about this decision or what we really need to see or expect to see from the Fed over the next few weeks. Let's set the Business Week agenda. Bloomberg News Global Economics and Policy Editor Kathleen Hayes is with us, and she is there in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hey, Kathleen, um, we weren't expecting any surprises, correct? Well, of course, it's hard to expect a surprise. No, I know what you mean. We, right. we figured, look, they, they're kind of stuck with what they've got. Well, let me start, though, by pointing something out, because right before 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. I noted uh, there's a very small sell-off today in bonds, but it's gotten a little bit deeper. For example, the benchmark 10-year, which was down 2.30 seconds, now down 5.30 seconds. The 30-year was down 1.30 seconds. It's down 6.30 seconds. So maybe a little bit of upward pressure on yields. It's a disappointment because maybe nobody expected the Fed would say, hey, we're ready to start increasing our uh, bond purchases. Right. But they, what they did repeat is, hey, we're going to keep it where it is for now, which is $120 billion a month, $80 billion of treasuries, $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. And because when, you know, coming into the elections, when people were betting pretty heavily on a blue wave that would lead to a lot of fiscal stimulus, more than uh, if, pre- if Trump stayed in the White House, et cetera, mm-hmm. we saw the curve steepening. We saw long-term yields going up. And people were saying, well, if nothing else, the Fed's got to make it clear that they're going to work against it if they have to. Well, what they're saying so far today is don't have to do it yet. So I think, Carol, this will be one of the big questions at the top of the list for Jay Powell when he starts that press conference at 2.30 Eastern. And maybe he just didn't want to stir the pot in a, in a week where the pot has been stirred a lot. And having <laughs> yeah. said that, Kathleen, he, you know, the Fed, another headline, they're going to continue to uh, focus, obviously, and watch the virus. They said the virus will continue to weigh on economic activity. The virus to pose considerable risks to the medium term outlook. They say the overall financial conditions remain accommodative, uh, accommodative, and they say weaker demand, lower oil prices holding down inflation, economic activity, and employment have continued to recover. So that's kind of their snapshot picture. Well, they've been saying, uh, I would say pretty unanimously since March. Right. Uh, in fact, you're making me think of when I interviewed uh, Jim Bullard from the mm-hmm. St. Louis Fed and Rob Kaplan within two, well, one day and then the next one, uh, you know, and that was just after the emergency meeting where they started cutting rates and they said, it's all about the virus. You know, the unemployment headlines, the payrolls headlines don't mean as much as the virus headlines. I think that started to shift because the U.S. economy is in recovery. The job recovery seems to have slowed down, but that focus till tomorrow, right? Let's see if it continue, if, if the economy can at least continue to create jobs or not. A lot of people on unemployment, a lot of people go on going on the longer term unemployment. So that's still not a positive sign, but that's about the virus. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason where the, the Fed would say until this health crisis is over, we can't, we're not going to consider doing any change in policy. Right. And the Fed saying that the path of recovery, depending on the course of the coronavirus pandemic, they know it, we know it, everybody knows it. But it does feel like Dave Wilson, come on in, Bloomberg Stocks columnist and editor watching the equity trade. It feels like equity markets kind of forgot that we are in the midst of a pandemic this week. Well, it sure does. I mean, you really saw a recovery from, you know, when they remembered last week and stocks really took a hit. Mm-hmm. And, and today it's interesting because, you know, the, the criticism about yesterday's advance is that, you know, you had the S&P 500 up more than 2%, and there are actually more stocks in the index down than up uh, by some of the uh, research I saw. I mean, that was the first time it ever happened. Mm-hmm. And so today, what do you have? Uh, you know, S&P 500 up more than 2% again. This time around, though, you have close to nine stocks up in the S&P 500 for everyone that's down. So it's clear 
that it's a broad-based advance this time around. Uh, you know, the S&P 500 uh, rising toward its highs of the day after uh, the results of the Fed meeting were released. And if you look at what's going on today, it's a lot of the economically sensitive areas of the market kind of leading the way, uh, notably raw material producers uh, with uh, gain for their index of 4.7% at the moment. I mean, all 11 of the main S&P 500 indexes are higher, but uh, raw material producers certainly jump out at today's trading. Listen, Kathleen, I just when we think about Fed policy, you know, is it is there a possibility? I was listening to a guest that David Weston had on. You know, the possibility that we go back into negative rates, or the Fed will need to be more aggressive, depending on where the economy goes. Well, they keep saying they have more tools. Up until now, Fed officials from Jay Powell doesn't matter almost who you ask; they're not fans of negative rates. Right? They go right to money market funds, for example. It would really mess up that market if you uh, potentially if you if you're going to move in that direction. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, I think the thing people might start talking about more is yield curve control. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to officially add a tool, I mean, if you're buying bonds and you want to keep yields from ra- ra- you know, raising too much, that's, all, that's sort of, I think, it's kind of you know the, the precursor of yield curve control. But to take it a step further and to target, make a target for the 10-year yield, for example, and say, we're going to make sure it doesn't go above that, that would be a step. I think the problem for the Fed right now, or the challenge, is that sure bring another tool in as long as there's so many people unemployed and a lot of people don't want to go back to work or their jobs aren't even there to go back to etc 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 any tool is going to have a tough time doing very much but in in addition though the the bond purchases i think people figured you can just flat out increase the amount but it is as you started out at the beginning i think hinting at we're in an election week, not an election day anymore, right? Correct. And in the middle of all this, the Fed's best bet is just to sit tight and wait for the December meeting. Well, and the one thing that we're going to talk about over the next few hours, this split income, this split outcome that we could potentially see if Joe Biden gets the White House, if we have still a, a, a Republican-controlled uh, Senate, that the chance of a big stimulus package is, is less likely. You know, and so I, you do wonder then, the Fed watching this, and what, what more can they do? And he can say, and Jay Powell will surely get... I'm, I've, I'm, I can't imagine Jay Powell not feeling like he could say today, well, no matter what happens, mm-hmm. um, we still need stimulus. He could certainly uh, repeat that. I, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, who presumably may be the Senate Majority Leader, or he may not, depending yeah. on how it goes, right, said when, when they get back, when Congress reconvenes, job one is going to be a rescue package. Now, the trillion dollar figure was on the table at one point, right? The five hundred billion that he floated before the election seemed really light, right? Um, you know, so so I think it, my I'm an optimist, Carol. So I think it may not be two point two trillion, which the Democrats have pushed hard for, led by Nancy Pelosi, and just lost seats in you know Democratic right, seats right, in the right. House. But it may be maybe we get something like a trillion. That's that's not nothing. No, it's not nothing. There's a lot of zeros in that number. Uh, Dave Wilson, just quickly tease your chart because it has kind of an election related, I feel like, or administration related theme. Well, it does. It's all about private prison stocks. President Trump tried to prop up the industry not long after he got uh, into office. Didn't work out so well. And now you got the election results and things are getting worse for those stocks. All right. We're looking forward to that. Hey, team, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Setting the agenda on this Thursday. Bloomberg News Global Economics and Policy Editor Kathleen Hayes back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to bring you the latest on this week's election as the counting of the votes continues, the lawsuits continue, and we're all awaiting to find out who will take up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue come January. Well, joining me today as we go through it all over the next few hours, Kevin Cirilli, he is Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent of Bloomberg Radio and TV, host, you know him well, of Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg 991 in Washington, D.C. He joins us from there. June Grosso also with us, legal analyst and host of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio every evening. He, she joins us on the phone uh, in New York. So, Kevin, let me kick it off with you. Where are we? I mean, Nancy Lyons just gave us a good rundown of, of some of the key states and what's going on. But what are you watching? What are you hearing also from the Biden and Trump camps? Well, look, I think I think first things first, it's great to be here with you, Carol. But, great to have you. Beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, all eyes are going to be on Nevada, right? And Clark County, Nevada, because that's specifically where we're still getting some of the vote tallies. Now, last I checked, just before I came on air, I dove into the Bloomberg terminal and I and I looked at the, the actual vote tally. 
Uh, and Joe Biden is leading by about 12,000 votes. That's a razor thin mm -hmm. margin. Uh, so beyond that, the, the, the president's former director of national intelligence, Rick Grinnell, uh, he is in Nevada right now uh, and fully just briefed reporters and said essentially they are fully prepared to take this thing through the courts. They're making this legal argument essentially that they believe uh, there's been a number of votes cast in Nevada by people from out of state. So they don't feel that those votes should be counted in the Nevada election. That's what's going on in that state. Uh, we should note just the electoral math right now. Joe Biden, based upon the Bloomberg electoral map total, is at 264, which puts him just six electoral votes away, a.k.a. the size of Nevada, away from <laughs> reaching the magic number of 270. The Trump campaign, for their part, uh, they have said that they're going to pursue legal action in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, uh, and even to some extent, maybe even in North Carolina. Uh, so that's where things stand as of now. Uh, obviously, as we've been reporting for the past week, really, this week, uh, we're urging patience, caution as, as we sort through all of this. But as we get the developments, we'll, we'll break them in real time. I want to get to June, but just remind me, Kevin, DJT, the president, where is he in terms of electoral votes right now? Well, right now, uh, he is still a, a couple of votes away. I believe the last I checked, it was 218 for, for President Trump. Um, and... Uh, so that's where he is right now. But he would have to win. He still has a shot, we should mm -hmm. mention. If he, if he wins Georgia, North Carolina, as well as uh, Pennsylvania, that would put him uh, with a path. It's just, you know, it's, you know, every, it's they, they're going to have to pursue legal action. Yeah, it's right. a trickier path. I think that's safe to say. Yeah, exactly. So, June, come on in. I mean, you watch the legal world. You know it so well. Kevin talked about some of the lawsuits that we've been seeing fast, you know, fast and furiously crossing the Bloomberg. You know, what do we need to know about the Trump team and the lawsuits that are out there? Well, they are filing a lot of lawsuits. That's the first thing you need to know. And they're filing them in a, in a lot of these states where the vote is still being counted or in other states, for example, like Michigan. And there are different reasons for the lawsuits. But most of the time, they're being turned away by the courts. For example, they tried to stop the ballot counting in Michigan yesterday. Well, a, a judge said the essence of the count is completed. The relief is completely unavailable. So I think any of their... Any of their lawsuits to stop the count are going to have a lot of trouble getting through. And also a lot of these other uh, cases, you heard Kevin mention that, there's, that they're saying this in about Nevada, Clark County, but a problem is they're making a lot of allegations, but when they go into a judge to try to prove them, they don't have the evidence to back them. So you're hearing all kinds of fraud allegations, but... You know, where is the fraud? They alleged that um, in Georgia yesterday that a poll worker had put the votes that of uh, ballots that came in late, mixed them with the votes of ballots that had come in on time. Well, that was proven when it went before a judge not to be the case. And a lot of the poll observers, actually, they found that they, they look for things and they sometimes find things that really aren't there because they're there looking. And then today, President Trump said there was a huge victory in Pennsylvania in court. Do you know what that victory was? The poll observers from the Trump campaign were allowed to move from about 30 feet observing to 60 to six feet observing. So it was Right. And, and by the way, that's online anyway. So you can see it online. So right. that's not a huge victory. Right. A lot of it goes to transparency, which is what the campaigns, both campaigns, to be fair, have been pushing for all along in this process. I do want to bring into the conversation. It's been one of our go-to voices on the campaign in the election. Joining uh, June and Kevin and myself is Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno, joining us once again from New Rochelle, New York. Jeannie, you and I have been talking for a long time. We all have been. Um, but here we are Thursday, and there are expectations that this could go on for a few more days. When you look at where we are in the race, what comes to mind first and foremost? Well, you know, a, a bit still trying to grapple with the fact, as you mentioned, that we are now on Thursday and looking like we may not have results in for a couple days. You know, going into this, we knew Pennsylvania may take until Friday. I was probably optimistic um, that it wouldn't come down to Pennsylvania. But at this point, I think one thing that comes to mind is the idea that we are still waiting on results, not just from Pennsylvania, but Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina. 
And, of course, you know, depending on who you're listening to, some people haven't even been, you know, quite satisfied with what's coming out of Arizona at this point. So the closeness, as we sort of compare this historically to, say, at 2000, in many states, and the fact we're not just talking about one state where there may be, you were just talking about potential contests, Mm -hmm. legal challenges, but that we're talking multiple states. You know, quite a difference, and I think this speaks volumes as to where we are at this point in our country and how divided we are. Hey, Jeannie, it's uh, uh, Kevin here, and uh, let me just correct something I I recently said. Uh, Trump has 214 electoral votes. I want to be careful with this. Uh, So uh, uh, Joe Biden has 264, six votes away from the threshold of 270. Uh, President Trump has 214 electoral votes. That's where the map stands right now. And you can follow all of our election coverage, mind you, on Election Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, Jeannie, you mentioned Arizona, and and I want to pick up on that because that has been a conversation uh, that I've been having with my sources in the president's re-election campaign. They are really confident that once the math is settled uh, on Maricopa County, that they will have uh, the votes to win Arizona. Explain to us where things stand right now in this key battleground state that the networks and the Associated Press uh, have called for uh, Joe Biden at this point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a fascinating situation in Arizona. Um, you know, again, we're looking at about um, 86% um, have been counted already, and we see a very narrow lead for Joe Biden um, about, depending, again, on, on what numbers and when they've been refreshed that you're looking at, about 50.5% to 48.1%. It's a little bit bigger than some of the others. But it's such a critical state because it has 11 electoral votes. And when some of the, you know, networks and others started calling it, as we talked about on on Tuesday night, Fox, and then later the AP started calling it a bit early, that really frustrated the president and his team. Um, And now we are looking to see nobody, as far as I have have said, and I don't want to misspeak because I'm trying to keep up with whatever everybody is, but nobody, as far as I know, who called it has taken the call back which is an indication that they feel pretty confident. But I do think that it is one of those cases where we will see legal challenges from the president's team because Arizona is such a critical state for the president and his team. Um, The idea that that goes Biden, of course, in 2016, you had the president beating Hillary Clinton there about 51.9 to 48.1. We're seeing, if you believe the numbers at 86 percent reporting, receive almost a flip there with Joe Biden. So I think it's going to be one of the contested states the president's team feels like they need that, particularly since, at least in my view, Michigan and Wisconsin seem so out of grasp to the president, even legally at this point, but I don't want to misspeak on that. You know, we've talked about Arizona, Nevada. I mean, those two counties, Clark and Maricopa, I mean, these are two of the largest counties in the U.S., so there's a lot of votes to process, no doubt about it. I do wonder, Jeannie, depending on the outcome, one thing to remember here, you understand this process, you've studied a lot of elections. I mean, it's not uncommon, especially if there's a close race, you know, to go and check the count and, and confirm that the outcome is the outcome. Yeah, it, it's not unusual, but I think, you know, the fact, number one, what is unusual is we see so many states so closely, um, you know, that are so close, rather. And the other thing that I think is a bit unusual is the idea that you would have so many legal challenges. I don't think we've seen anything like this. But historically, I don't think this is something we should be surprised at, because this is, to a certain extent, where we've been moving since 2000. You know, in the United States, unfortunately, at this point, elections have very much moved into the court system. And for a democracy, that Mm. is a big question to think about broader than just this election. Yeah, democracy can be messy. I do want to mention a headline. It was about a half an hour before we came on air. A Pennsylvania official saying that most votes may be counted by today. So continuing to, of course, count them. Uh, June, come on in on this. You're listening to our conversation. Hi, Jeannie. Well, we were just talking about Pennsylvania. Carol said that they're expecting that most votes will be counted by today. And earlier today, Joe Biden's campaign manager said that Biden is closing in on Trump's lead and that by the end of the day, Biden is going to win by a sizable number of votes. I wonder if you think that's overly optimistic about Pennsylvania. You know, that's what I, it's such a good question, because that's what I have, and, you know, we've long believed, that those later votes, the mail-in ballots, if you will, the absentee ballots, would favor 
President, uh, sorry, Vice President Biden, um, because the Democrats had been so careful to get their vote out early, and same-day voting would favor the president to a certain extent. So I am not surprised to hear that. So it's going to be not just when people voted, but where the vote count, where they're still voting. And I think as we look like a place like Pennsylvania, that doesn't surprise me, nor, by the way, does it surprise me that the vice president is going to get votes out of Georgia as this count continues. So based on those two factors, the when they voted and where they were voting, where the vote count is still coming from, rather, I think it is not surprising that we see a narrowing of the gap. And, you know, I I wouldn't want to predict that Biden would overtake Trump in Pennsylvania, but I, I, you know, I think it is possible still at this point. And folks, if it sounds confusing, it's because it is, <laughs> right? Because the precedents, I mean, I mean, and, 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 and even for us in, in this business, but I can't even imagine following along at home because there's just right now threats of legal action and we don't have really hard, hard data or hard documentation source material in front of us in June. I mean, I would put this question to June because specifically, you know, as it relates to the case that we saw go to the Supreme Court on October 28th, right? The, the case that yes, the, uh, the new case. judge, Amy Coney Barrett, decided not to participate in because she was just a few days on the job. And honestly, we might be revisiting that case, which would allow for votes that are postmarked on Election Day to be counted in Pennsylvania for up to three days Afterward, And that's what I hear a lot of my sources talking about. But the president has even uh, given conflicting statements uh, via social media on Twitter on this particular point. What do we know specifically, June, about that uh, Pennsylvania well, case? And June, just this got is, 30 seconds and then we'll come back and oh, talk okay. more. This, it's too complicated to do in 30 seconds. So I'll just say it's very complicated. <laughs> Let's pick up with it on the other side because there are a lot of indications that it may not actually get to the Supreme Court, but there are possibilities that it could. And it depends on a lot of different factors. And just to remind everyone, this is about the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision that ballots that were postmarked by Election Day could be received three days after Election Day. The Supreme Court did not touch that by a four to four vote, but some of the conservative justices said, well, we can come back to this maybe after the election. So the possibilities, as Kevin mentioned, the possibilities there of that being a Bush v. Gore scenario, the possibilities are there, but there has to be basically a perfect storm of problems. The election has to be so close that Pennsylvania is the pivotal state that the election results depend on. The margin of the vote in Pennsylvania has to be the same or less than the number of ballots that are contested. So in other words, the number of ballots that are contested and were counted, they're they're being held aside. That has to be greater than the margin that separates Biden and Trump so that it would change the election results. So you have to have all those things going on. Remember, Bush v. Gore was about 537 ballots. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, we're really getting in the weeds, but we're understanding how this process works. Jeannie, come on back in. You know, I, I do wonder how you anticipate, you know, the next few days kind of playing out, or is this that a possibility that we go into next week before we really know who is the winner for the White House? You know, I would expect that we would know sooner than next week. I I would think that we should know if Pennsylvania does finish counting by the end of the day today, you know, into tomorrow, as we were originally told, um, you know, we get results fairly soon. um, And I don't want to misspeak out of Arizona, Nevada, um, you know, already Arizona, you know, has been called by the AP and others. and Bloomberg has gone with that call. Um, I think we should know because depending on who you are watching, um, you know, Joe Biden is very close to that 270 mark. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say that the president is not going to challenge those results. So I'm not suggesting that we're going to accept that. Yes. Jeannie, and I think that raises such a great point, right? Because just earlier today, Clark County Registrar Joe Gloria, uh, he's the official uh, in Nevada who's overseeing all of this and this incredibly important, important battleground state right now, six electoral votes. He's saying that it might take until Saturday or Sunday before the state's largest county, Clark County, Las Vegas, Clark County 
finishes their vote tabulation. So they might not official give, officially give this the stamp of the approval until this weekend out in Nevada. Uh, so they're taking their time. <laughs> I don't want to say they're taking their time, but, but according to him, he said at a press conference earlier today, quote, our goal here in Clark County is not to count fast. We want to make sure that we are being accurate. And he went on to say that they still have at least 63,262 ballots, Carol, that they still have left to count. Right. Um, and then coupled with all these legal threats that we're seeing coming from the Trump campaign. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. So, Jeannie, you know, when I watch this process, we've talked about it before. We're going to talk about this later, that maybe we need a better election process, that maybe the Electoral College has, you know, its time has come. What's your observations on this and what's the likelihood of something changing? Well, you know, it's it's such a good question. There are, um, you know, obviously the Electoral College is part of our Constitution. Mm -hmm. There are ways to get around, if you will, the Electoral College without amending the Constitution because I don't see that happening anytime soon. We haven't amended the Constitution since the early 1970s. In this partisan environment, I think it would be tough to do. But we do have movements out there, like the National Popular Vote Compact, um, which are closing in on this sort of back-end way to get around it, which would be that a number of states totaling 270 more or more electoral college votes agree to the compact um, where they will follow the National Popular Vote winner. So if they make headway there, and I think, I, I don't want to misspeak, I think there are about 70 electoral college votes short of that, if they make pro- progress there, if you have enough states following the popular vote like that, then you know the idea that the Electoral College winner wouldn't be the popular vote winner would be off the table. Do I think that's going to happen anytime soon? I think yeah. it's more likely, um, you know, if we were to have a result this time where the popular vote winner was not the Electoral College vote winner. If not, and Carol, you know, that's not. The, I doubt it. Yeah. What Carol, say, that's Kev? where the divided government really gets interesting, especially yeah. on, on changing things like the Supreme Court, because Republicans are looking like they're going to have a majority in the Senate. Yeah, so. And that means that it's going to happen <laughs> as far as all the people have been talking about court packing, and it was such a big question, and Joe Biden was going to appoint a commission, and without the Senate... There's not even a question about it. It's why we have to think about so many different things, especially when it comes to making change. Um, Jeannie Zeno, you're the best. Thank you so much. Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science uh, on the phone from Westchester. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. All right, this week's voting process, man, we are all over it. Uh, It seems like it's similar to what happened in 2016. As many wondering, you know, has many of us wondering about how we elect presidents. And we're talking about the Electoral College. This story, uh, this upcoming story that we're going to talk about, it's in the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. It's about how we maybe need to make America boring again by fixing its dated (laughs) system. That story, reported by Bloomberg News Senior International Affairs reporter Mark Champion, joining Kevin Cirilli, June Grosso, and me. Mark joining us from London. Mark, it's great to have you here with us. So tell us about our system. Uh, not doing so well, huh? Uh, yes. I mean, it's in a way, it's ironic because, uh, you know, this is the, uh, you know, a country that has the oldest constitutional democracy in the world, extremely rightly proud of it, the, the Constitution. Uh, and yet uh, the Constitution is part of the problem uh, in the sense that, the, you know, this is an election system uh, that has kind of become ossified. And a lot of the uh, problems that many, many countries had and have gradually sort of worked out over the years, it hasn't really been possible to do that in the U.S. And so you have a, a system where, you know, just to take one example, you, we've had a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, toxic debate really over voter ID and voter registration uh, with accusations that, you know, some tools for suppression and all that sort of thing. Well, you know, in a country like India, which has 800 million voters, a very complicated federal system, very complicated elections, um, they have automatic registration at the age of 18. You're issued automatically, uh, sent free in the mail to you, a photo ID card, which is matched to the electoral roll. This simply isn't a problem. Uh, so there's a lot of structural issues like that that uh, really come to the surface when uh, the the, the political uh, atmosphere becomes very polarized and uh, the debate becomes, you know, poisonous. 
And that is really what's happened in the U.S. Mark, I was really impressed with the system that you just talked about, the automatic registration system in India. But I wonder if anything like that would work here when we're in a country where even with you know, some government directives to wear masks, that there are people who think that that impinges on their liberty rights. So I wonder if it would work here. Uh, it, well, that's, it's a very you know, a good question and a good point. I mean, I guess the counter to that would be that a lot of states have implemented what amounts to automatic registration. Um, you know, other states have not. And that kind of goes to a second issue with the U.S., which is quite, you know, quite unusual in the U.S. Even federal systems like Canada, you know, Germany, uh, India and others, they have a single electoral authority that administers the election, sets the rules, determines when poll, polling stations are open and not, what the ballot design is and all that. It's, it's done from one part of the end of the country to the other by the same uh, organization uh, applying the same rules. The U.S. Uh, doesn't do that. The U.S. Uh, Constitution gives the authority for the elections to individual states. So what you have is a, a very different voting experience in you know a state like Georgia uh, from a state like Vermont. And in fact, when you know rankings are done, uh, where uh, the electoral performance processes of uh, d countries across the world are put it under the uh, microscope uh, f on different criteria, and you come up with a ranking. You know, Vermont is right up there with the best countries, the Scandinavians and, and Scandinavian countries, and so on. Um, but uh, Georgia's, you know, way down and, and a completely different world. Uh, even not doing as well as uh, the, the Republic of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Well, I mean, with all due respect, actually, I'll take that part back to the Soviets. I mean, they don't have the best record of democracy in, in, in the it's United States. Not apples to apples, right? Yeah, yeah. not yeah, apples yeah, but, to but, apples. Uh, but other, but you know, but other countries have much better systems than we do. I mean, we have state by state, uh, county by county, and it make and you see what happens. Look at the look at the different results we're getting when and the different rules that are in place. I mean, I think uh, it's. Needs reforming. Well, Mark, come on in, because reading through your story is, you know, there's someone you quote in it, and just as part of the problem is that the U.S. system is, it's old, you know, that it was drafted when there were no women judges, there were slaves, and California didn't exist. I mean, there were, you know, we all talk about disruption. Systems need to be, you know, revised, made better, and we could do that. They do. They do need to be revised. And, you know, Germany, for example, is constantly revising its electoral system and its constitution. It's just much easier to do. And the, the sort of the irony is that, you know, uh, Americans after the war were quite involved uh, one way and another in, uh, uh, you know, helping the Germans with their constitution. Um, but, you know, the, the American constitution itself uh, is very hard to change. It has been changed not very many times. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is... You know, at times that's a great thing. At other times, it's uh, it's an obstacle. What does the United States do right, Mark? What does it do right? <laughs> um, well, yes. actually, the if, you know, it was quite interesting listening to the uh, the OSCE monitors uh, for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. They monitor you know elections in all of their member states. There are fifty-seven of them, including the U.S. Every every member is committed to let these monitors come and look at their elections. And at the end, they, you know, they say what was good, what was bad, and they give recommendations and so on. And one of the things that they said is that the, it, really the spirit, so this is the spirit of all the, the, the people who are running the elections, the volunteers, the local officials, uh, there's an army of people out there doing it. And the, the point that they made is that you know, the reason this system works you know, it is still a functioning democracy, is that all these people, uh, you know, are, uh, you know, they're doing something they believe in and that they are, you know, fairly well trained, they know what they're doing, uh, and so that works. Uh, where they said that it falls down... Right. Well, first, and no easy feat, that, mind yeah. you, no easy feat. No, not an easy feat at all. And, and it sort <laughs> of, you know, it had to grow organically. Uh, because it isn't just done by, you know, a single organization that kind of can hone all of its, you know, the wheels of its machinery. It, it happens, uh, you know, organically and, and grows up over the years in, in different ways in different states. 
Um, and at times, you know, that it's, normally that worked fine. All through the 20th century, it worked fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, increasingly it's a problem, and that's really because of the polarization, and that presses down on the weaknesses in the systems, you know, the places where someone can, you know, take advantage. Right. Um, and arguably you've seen that happen where several states, you know, with the mail-in votes and so on, several states said, well, you can't start counting until, you know, election day. Right. Uh, you know, whereas other states counted early and it was all dealt with, well, and now you have... You know, we have what we have with the, the, the president saying that these, yeah. Mark, we got to run. I'm so sorry. But everybody should go online, check out the magazine, because it's a great read. I mean, it's a very different country when uh, our forefathers created it. That's for sure. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump's legal team, man, this has been an important issue, we know, of this election cycle. We've been anticipating the legal angle of the election uh, leading up to the election, and we continue to talk about it as uh, Trump's team in particular has really flooded states with lawsuits as the count continues. Let's get into what we need to know on the legal front. Derek Muller is professor of law at University of Iowa College of Law. He's taught courses in election law and federal courts and so much more. He joins us on the phone from Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, Derek, great to have you here with Kevin and June and myself. So when you look at this, and here we are waiting for an outcome, we know that there are talks of recounts and legal cases. What is it that you think is the most important when it comes to the legal story of election 2020? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, sort of flooding the zone right now with lawsuits. (laughs) I think about, you know, um, there's sort of three tracks happening right now. um, But it's sort of an open question about how many, if any, are going to be decisive, right? So there's the one track where there are lawsuits saying that the Trump campaign's been denied access to observe certain procedures in the election. Um, They won one of those in Pennsylvania today that's on appeal. And and there's some others pending in other states to say, we need to have our people in the building to make sure everything looks okay. Um, That might slow things down briefly, but it doesn't really change a whole lot, um, except unless the observers object. The second thing is to think about sort of challenges to certain batches of ballots. So uh, they've sued in some places in in, uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania to say this county has had this particular procedure, either um, with a handwriting mismatch or the like, that, that wasn't sort of properly approved. They're not implementing it correctly. Um, so those might affect small batches of ballots. Um, so far, they haven't, but that's sort of one potential thing to think about. And the third is the recounts. They've already indicated they'd like to recount uh, Wisconsin. We'll see. We're sort of waiting for some final results. Right? We have to finish the count before we can get to the recount, um, and then we'll see what happens. But I think, you know, with all of these things, it depends. If it's if if the Biden campaign appears to be substantially ahead in a large number of states. Um, at the end of these counts, it's going to be very hard to succeed because you really got to get all your ducks in a row in all these places. So, Derek, uh, lawsuits were dismissed in Michigan and Georgia, and today Pennsylvania Republicans withdrew their request for a court order in a suburban county near Philly where they accused officials of illegally allowing mail-in ballots to be counted before Election Day. Now, there are the losses. The one The one win that I see is the one you refer to where about access to the counting process and could they get closer to watch six feet instead of the 30 feet. Do you see any other victories that the Trump campaign has had in lawsuits? Uh, No other victories so far, at least none none that I've uh, seen. Again, there are so many, it's hard to keep track. Um, Exactly. Yeah, the observer ones are interesting because they really are facts on the ground, right? They they are the questions about, you know, was this observer doing something disruptive? Were they entitled to be there? Was it a timing issue? Whatever it might be. And again, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is reconsidering the the challenge we just talked about. Um, For some of these other ones saying, you know, these ballots shouldn't be counted, they should be excluded, you know, that they're not cured properly. Um, those might take a few more days because they're not as pressing, right? The observation has to be happening right now as they're counting, whereas if we've counted everything else and we're fighting over a smaller batch of ballots, those things might come, you know, in the next week. So we'll, we'll see about that front. Um, but it's, it's very hard. There's sort of, again, a lot of things out there, and it's, it's hard to tell without getting deep in the weeds on the particular facts and the trustworthiness of the witnesses' allegations and, and what the other side has to say about whether or not this is normal. Um, it's just hard to sort of make sort of broad-based claims about whether any particular ones look, look really good at this time. And just following up on, there are several lawsuits that 
are talking about and requiring or want more access to the ballot process, as you just described. But will those mean anything after the vote is counted? I mean, is there, yes, they want to get access, they want to see closer, but what happens after the, the ballots are counted? Does that, where does that leave them? Is there any remedy for them? So not, I mean, after they're counted, they're counted, right? So, um, you know, the observation there is, is particularly important to make sure that teams are, are counting ballots appropriately. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think it varies a little bit from state to state, but, but most states have a process where there's already a bipartisan team who's supposed to be there counting the ballots, um, especially with absentee ballots. They have to pull them out of the envelope and flatten them out and run them through their machine. Um, and then sometimes there's questions. If the machine doesn't doesn't pick up on it, is it because the the ballot was torn or mis or mangled or folded a different way? Did they use red pen instead of black pen, and the machine didn't pick it up? And then there's some sort of question. Well, how do we count this ballot? And usually, again, that bipartisan team reaches a consensus conclusion. Um, and so the the, the ob- observers are there just to make sure that everyone's sort of complying with the law, that they're not sort of throwing out a batch of ballots or they're including ones that should have been excluded, and they can provide that opportunity to challenge. But but once the sort of challenges have sort of run their course and the ballots are run through the machine and added into those totals, I mean, it's really hard to unscramble the egg at that point, right? Uh, uh, unless you can prove something systemic, fraudulent uh, across the state or in a, in a broad way to undermine the election results, um, the totals are the totals. So, Derek, you're listening to that. I mean, it really gets down to the nitty gritty, but it does, you know, it makes me wonder as an American, and I thought about that because I actually walked to the polls. I wanted to, I like to see the process, but it does, you know, get to the question and begs, you know, the question of, you know, how safe, how reliable is our election process? You know, and I don't know if you can tell from past legal challenges and what's happening today, but what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, people feel pretty confident in the election systems as safe and secure I mean, at various levels, right? I mean, we do the best we can. Uh, there's going to be mistakes and problems that happen. And I think, you know, that press conference is a great illustration that, um, you know, sometimes it's the wrong form of a ballot. And, and one of the things in the United States that maybe is uh, a little different from other parts of the world, we don't only just have 50 states running elections. In a lot of places, it's really county or sometimes even at local municipalities running elections, and they're making these decisions, and sometimes problems arise. So one of the things they talked about in Georgia is there are about 400 ballots that were on the wrong kind of paper to run through the machine, and so they have to duplicate them, which is they get a bipartisan team together, and they refill out the ballots on a proper, <laughs> on a proper uh, kind of ballot that they can run through the machine, uh, compare it to the other one that everyone agrees that that was the voter's intent, run it through the machine, and we count it up. So it's it's sometimes just a long slog to get through this process. But I think, you know, for the most part, we get over those hiccups, we make it through, and we're going to see a, we're going to see a total, uh, you know, hopefully in the, in, in the weeks to come. I think the 2000 election educated the majority of Americans about the Electoral College and Mm. the popular vote. And I think that this election is educating people about the patchwork of different regulations, Derek, in terms of every state having a different process. And we've talked about the negatives of that process, but it really does uh, bear to keep in mind about the benefits of that process from a national security perspective. I think back to before the 2018 midterms, when there was a, a widespread briefing for the media uh, run by uh, the nonpartisan intelligence community officials, just as they elaborated upon the significant national security risks that local governments, local municipalities actually face, and that it makes it much more difficult for a hostile foreign actor, whether it be Russia or Iran or China, as we've seen in this election uh, efforts uh, to do so, for them to hack into uh, a smaller system versus having to do it for for one blanket uh, uniform uh, concrete system. So I, I think that that bears keeping in mind as well. When when all of this is said and done from a legal perspective, Derek, and, and based upon uh, history, what has the the previous elections? What was, for example, the most previously litigated election? Do we know? Um, and and how do you think this might change course for future elections? Yeah, it's it's. Certainly interesting to think about the comparison of pre-election day challenges and post-election day challenges. And, and to be frank, I think this election will, will blow out all records on both fronts. <laughs> uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the pre-election side, right, COVID really did a number. I mean, we had hundreds of lawsuits. <laughs> Understatement the of the year. <laughs> yeah, COVID know, really did a number. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds of them, right? Um, 
Now, it's worth, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, on the post-election day side of things. Yeah, I think the Trump campaign, again, is sort of flooding the airwaves with sort of uh, with, with, with lawsuits all over the place on a lot of a lot of matters. You know, in Florida in 2000, we talk about Bush versus Gore, but I mean, there were, you know, at least 30 lawsuits filed at various stages by various folks, voters, um, you know, interested groups, federal court, state court, all over sort of challenging these things, challenging various sort of things. It just kind of all got channeled into the one case of Bush versus Gore. That was the ultimate sort of denouement, if you will. Of what happened there, so um, it's it's interesting in, in the United States because elections have traditionally been something reserved to the political process. To be frank, if there were disputes about elections, um, it was really something that Congress resolved. Congress resolved the election of 1876, one of the most contested elections in American history. Congress resolved the tie of the election in 1800. Right, it, it was it was that sort of a process. But, you know, since Bush versus Gore, we've increasingly looked at litigation and said, you know, maybe that, you know, that that's an attractive place for us to be thinking about uh, about how to resolve these disputes. And whether it was John Kerry's, you know, attempt that never went through about challenging Ohio in 2004 versus the recount efforts by Jill Stein, you know, the Green Party candidate who funded recounts in, in Wisconsin in 2016. Um, there's sort of people have been eyeing, you know, whether or not it's the right time for the next sort of stage of lawsuits. And this is just, I think, um, as the as the counting drags on, we're just going to see see more lawsuits sort of crop up if that's the case. So, and Derek, I just wonder your your reaction because as I keep watching all these many many little press conferences from local officials local election officials it seems what impresses me is how serious they are how the, everyone is taking this really seriously and they're really trying to follow all the rules and regulations they haven't found any kind of fraud they haven't found an election worker who did something wrong or ballots that were put in the wrong place it seems like they're really doing what they have to do and that that's why most of these lawsuits are going to fail in the end yeah, so I mean, I think at, at a high level, I think that's right. You know, I, there's no question that we've seen instances of poll workers who have committed fraud, right? And and th those they happen. They're out there. Uh, there. There's examples of it. They're rare, but they're out there. Um, you know, ballots haven't been found. Although to be fair, so far it seems like uh, in places like Pennsylvania, they are stumbling across some they haven't found <laughs> earlier. And, it, and but I mean, again, a few here and there, yeah. But you have to think about the scope, right? Yeah, we've had if, there, if some of these states have been having mail-in ballots for over a month. I mean, I don't know how often you spent you, you step foot into your local city hall or, or county government building. You know, they're often sort of these older buildings where there's sort of workers who are crammed on top of each other and filing cabinets and random closets in the basement, right? And if you're getting stacks and stacks of mail. It sometimes gets shoved aside if it was back September 30th when you got this batch. So it's, it's a sort of all the kinks in the process working themselves out at this stage as we're trying also to get Also COVID, yes. you know, the COVID yes. problems are just magnifying everything. Yeah, well, yeah, you don't have the staff in the building who are processing these ballots or looking at them or with that sort of regularity in sight. No, absolutely. I think, I think, but, but I think you're right. You've exactly hit the nail on the head that there hasn't been sort of an allegation of sort of widespread fraud, right? We don't see any sort of evidence that there's someone's cooking the book somewhere. Um, you know, it, it, maybe we'll find an isolated incident or two well after Election Day. But so far, the process, I think you're right. The local officials take it very seriously and want to do the right thing. And let's remember, you know, for many states, you know, mail-in ballots, they've been doing this for years. So they do have those systems in place. To be fair, though, the sheer volume of the mail-in ballots uh, this year has certainly been something that I think a lot of folks uh, weren't necessarily used to. So uh, the counting continues. We're going to get back to this discussion in just a moment. Do want to remind everyone, it is a Fed Thursday, wrapping up a meeting today, uh, the Federal Reserve, keeping policy steady, rates on hold, asset buying unchanged. Having said that, we're just about 40 minutes away from the closing bell on this Thursday, and equity is bouncing around a little bit, but pretty steady and just off their highs of the session. That accounts to, or that amounts to about a 2% gain on the S&P 500. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 546 points, also up almost 2%, and the NASDAQ definitely uh, the outperformer, the NASDAQ stack up more than 300 points, good for a gain of 2.6%. All right, let's get back to our discussion. So, Derek Muller, I mean, if you could change anything that <laughs> to make this a more secure process so that we don't necessarily have this legal wrangling um, or legal questions in the future, 
what would we need to do? Because I think Kevin brought up a really smart and important point that as we try to keep our elections secure, that maybe they are more secure, you know, by the states, you know, really overseeing these processes. But it does create then a multitude of systems, right, in the process. So how could we make it better and safer maybe or, or more uh, reassuring, if you will, on a legal basis? Yeah, I, I think there's a few things for us to think about going forward. And I, I, I would hope, you know, the, the problem is there, there's sort of the bipartisan efforts, but they often get swallowed up in, in the partisan efforts as Congress sort of wants to do sort of what their side wants, whether it's voter ID or, or you know, whatever it might be. Um, I think first, you know, despite the fact that there's this decentralization, the Election Assistance Commission with the Department of Homeland Security and, and uh, Director of National Intelligence and others have really worked very hard to help think about making sure that our critical systems infrastructure in the United States is secure, that it's going to be resilient in the face of attack, that they're certifying election systems and ensuring that while states have choices, they're choices within sort of a suite or a variety of options. So I think that's that's one important thing to think about going forward, whether or not there should be some maybe more uniformity, but really more just sort of oversight to ensure that the states are doing this appropriately. Another thing is, as we think about this sort of ballot processing thing with, with uh, you know, these states, you know, one of the problems that happened is, especially in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you had Republican legislatures with Democratic governors really fighting, fighting a lot about, about this process, including the process of... Um, processing ballots ahead of election day. States like Florida after 2000 really got their act together. They, they, mm. they let uh, you know, uh, clerks start looking at the ballots early, not, not to count them, just to make sure that the voters are eligible and that the, the signatures match and everything Hanging like chads that. chads will do that to you, right? Yeah, so that's, <laughs> <laughs> the trauma was good. I mean, if you saw it, Governor Jeb Bush tweeted out uh, you know, yesterday <laughs> that he was glad they got their act together and, and fixed things. Um, so I think, you know, I think there might be a place in the United States to think about some of these little tweaks about, you know, maybe encouraging states because Congress has robust authority, both in terms of giving states cash to run elections and in its mm. elections clause authority for congressional elections to say, you should start, you know, opening the envelopes, you know, the Friday before the election. Like that's a, that's a standard we're going to put in place. And I think some of these standards could be non-controversial bipartisan solutions. Um, there's just going to be a question of whether there, there's an appetite for that in Washington, D.C. in 2021. So I heard some people say, I don't remember where it came from, I can't give anyone credit, that the <laughs> postmark, the postmark that smudged is going to be the hanging chad of the 2020 <laughs> elections. Yeah. Have, have you seen that? Because that can be a factor in a lot of these states. Yeah, and even more to the point, the one case that, you know, still lingering before the Supreme Court is out of Pennsylvania, where they would accept uh, those ballots postmarked on Election Day up through tomorrow, Friday, but also those ballots that don't have a postmark at all, right? Um, I think rethinking how the Postal Service handles ballots, and not just in volume, but in terms of the speed of delivery and, and so on, is, is another sort of pressing concern for the next Postmaster General or for Congress and its oversight function. Um, you know, Congress had some hearings where they sort of dragooned uh, the, the Postmaster General to, to sort of fight about this stuff late summer. Um, there's a federal judge in Washington, D.C., who's sort of been micromanaging the Postal Service sort of on a day-by-day -day basis. Um, you know, those are not long-term solutions, and they're not sort of in the benefit of, of uh, the national interest, right? So I, I'm not a Postal Service expert, far from it, but it is something I think that will require a little bit of, of oversight, you know, going forward. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Um, you may have to become one. We <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. All right, going to leave it on that note. Derek, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Derek Muller, professor of law at University of Iowa College of Law, uh, joining us on the phone from Iowa City, Iowa. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, this election, once again, we saw a Democratic presidential candidate collecting more popular votes than his Republican opponent. We know it's not over yet. We're, of course, uh, contingent and watching what happens when it comes to the Electoral College. But when it comes to the popular vote, you know, it kind of begs a question, why can't Republicans win that popular vote? Writing about it is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Burst Bernstein. He kind of asked that question in his latest column. He covers and writes about politics and policy. He's taught about it uh, at the University of Texas in San Antonio. He joins us on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Jonathan, good to have you here with Kevin and June and myself. First of all, give us some history when it comes to the popular vote and Republicans. 
Well, Democrats have now won the popular vote. And you're gonna, I expect you're going to hear a lot of this from Democrats in the, in the next several weeks. Um, from 1992 up through this year, Democrats have won the popular vote in all but one time, seven out of eight, which is the best streak anybody, any party's ever had in U.S. history. So it's, it's pretty impressive in just on the raw uh, numbers itself. When you look at it more carefully, one of the things I said in the column is, you know, it sort of breaks down a little bit. Some of the, there weren't a lot of runaway wins as there were for, say, Republicans during the Reagan-Bush era, Nixon-Reagan era. Um, and, you know, had Democrats taken the presidency, say, in, in 2000 when Al Gore won a very, very narrow popular vote margin, they might well have lost it, say, in 2008, and you might have had a couple big Republican wins. So one thing I'm saying is it may not be all that it really seems. So, Jonathan, are you saying that what, – what's your opinion about whether the presidential vote, because of the electoral vote, it doesn't match the popular vote, and whether there should be changes in the system so that the popular vote does mirror who the president is? Well, it's a great question because, you know, traditionally in the United States history, there hasn't been this split that we saw in 2016 when Trump got elected. Um, usually the winner of the – Electoral College is the winner of the popular vote. It's only happened a handful of times. However, two of those were fairly recent in 2000 and 2016. Even then, though, in 2000, it was basically a tie both ways. So there wasn't that much of a thing there. Um, it looks like this time the Electoral College is probably going to wind up on the same side as the popular vote. So, you know, it, it makes a lot of people make a big fuss about it. There's a good case to be made that we shouldn't have the Electoral College. But most of the time, it doesn't actually make that big a difference. So in terms of where things go, though, and I, and I just want to catch everybody up to speed because we, we do have some, some new developments. According to CBS News, CBS is reporting that Jared Kushner is looking for there to be some type of spokesperson for the uh, president's legal team akin to James Baker uh, that they're looking for. And we should also note, and I, I think this is really important, folks, to keep in mind as we have these conversations about the legal cases, as we also have these cases, uh, have the conversation about the Electoral College, is that in essence, one of the, 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 the president's entire strategy right now is dependent upon whether or not this thing comes down to one or two states. Right now, it's, it, there's a handful of states where the, the votes haven't been counted, whether it's uh, Arizona and Maricopa County, which has been trending left, and, and some networks have called uh, for the Democrats. If it's out in Arizona, uh, it's coming down to Clark County. But you've also got North Carolina, Georgia, Pennsylvania. And if it, if it sounds a little bit Discombobulate, discombobulated, it's because it is. And when I talk to sources, uh, Jonathan Bernstein, on the president's re-election campaign, they're not even right now all speaking from the same talking points or from the same uh, legal playbook because they don't know which specific lawsuit in order to come down with. So how is that muddying the waters of the president's argument just from an analytical standpoint, not a political one, an analytical standpoint about why there's so much confusion right now around the president's strategy? And Jonathan just got about a minute here. That's pretty simple. There is no strength to the president's legal argument. There just isn't. Um, you know, the, the votes are proceeding normally. Um, this is how it's supposed to work. In, in many cases, for example, Pennsylvania, it's working slowly because Republicans set it up to work slowly. But the truth is, at the end of the day, the president doesn't really have much of a legal case. And if the states go the way it looks like they will, it's, he's not going to have a very practical chance, even if the courts were very generous to him. Maybe that's why Rudy Giuliani is making the statements for the uh, legal team instead of Baker. Yeah, I mean, the other half of this is that the president seems to be doing his legal post-election strategy the same way, the same sort of half-assed way he does policy in the White House. So, you know, that's what you get. Hey, Jonathan, I want to pick up on something um, Kevin mentioned, and we were talking about just the inability of really even the Republican Party to kind of all be on the same page. And I wonder, and we've got a, a story coming up uh, a little bit later on. It's the cover of the magazine about Trumpism and just Donald Trump's impact on politics in the Republican Party. No matter what happens in terms of the White House, it's here to stay. But I do wonder about the inability of maybe all Republicans to kind of feel the same way about the direction of the party impacts that popular vote? Well, you know, what I would say is hurting the party more than anything else is 
that the presidents um, that they've had have had a real difficult time staying popular because they've had a real difficult time governing. You know, if you look mm. at Donald Trump, he's been below water for four years in his approval ratings. The last Republican president before that, George W. Bush, was briefly very, very popular after the September 11th attacks, but then spent the last four to five years of his administration, of his two terms, underwater. He was able to win re-election with the majority of the popular vote, only one who's done it, but he still was unpopular. So, you know, Republican presidents have been unpopular their last nine years in office. If you add in the last year of the first George Bush, they've been unpopular for... I don't know. i got to interrupt, though, because he's got 93% approval rating with Republicans. Jonathan, I mean, the president held together the Republican Party. So I hear you on the sense. I mean, look, he, you know, it, it's still, he, he has a very real chance of losing re-election, but Republicans picked up seven seats in the House. Mitch McConnell, we were all talking, oh, is Amy McGrath going to upset Mitch McConnell? on track to potentially be the leader uh, of the of the Senate again. Lindsey Graham won re-election. Joni Ernst Maybe won that's re-election. Despite, that's despite Trump. But I, I gotta I gotta tell you, this is such an and I gotta really be candid here. When I talk to Republicans, this conversation that we're having is totally divorced from I'm gonna say reality because mm. there are so many Republicans that I talk with who say even if President Trump doesn't win re-election, that w- the way he's changed this party on trade policy, on manufacturing, on foreign policy, has totally... He is the new Republican establishment, whether people like it or not. And I, that's just a fact. That may be true. That's, that's separate from the question of, is he popular among the population at large? And the truth is, he isn't. And, you know, he wasn't in 2016, managed to fluke out of uh, electoral college vote uh, win anyway. He isn't in 2020. He's going to wind up losing by a larger uh, majority in the, in the uh, popular vote. And, you know, he is really popular among the Republican Party. They had huge turnout this time. That's to his credit. But, you know, at least that shows that he's very popular within his party. But beyond sort of that group, you know, yes, he's very popular with his strong supporters. Beyond that, not so much. Jonathan, What's your take on, let's say Trump loses the election, will he go away? Will he leave the political scene or will he continue to dominate the Republican Party? You know, that uh, you have to get inside somebody's head, so I, I don't know that any of us can answer that. I do think that it's absolutely true. There, he has very, very strong supporters, so if he wants to, he very well could you know, be the dominant voice in the Republican Party for the next four years, um, assuming he loses. And he very well could run for the presidency again and perhaps even get the nomination. That is very hard to tell because it mostly depends on what he himself decides to do. Is that what he wants to do with his life at his current age and his current situation or not? And it's very hard to tell. If it's not him, there'll be somebody who, you know, there'll be a series of people, some of whom will sound more or less like him. But I don't think anybody's going to sound exactly like Donald Trump. But it's interesting. Go ahead, I think it's really interesting in, in the sense, but and I know people who are listening are going to, you know, don't swerve off the road. But I think what the Republican Party is going to have to decide, and I don't want to get too far into hypotheticals while people are still counting votes. But regardless of any time a, a, a presidential nominee loses the election, will the same thing happen to Donald Trump? What happened to Hillary Clinton, which was there was a freezing out of Hillary Clinton. And, 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 and I think it's going to be more difficult for Republicans to really do this, especially when you look at a key battleground state like Florida that Trump won, uh, Ohio, uh, which he won. And and look, I mean, there is an argument to be made that, again, he was able to defeat the Bush contingency of the Republican Party in the primary. And so he's in there. He's in there to stay. I, I, I just I don't see him going away based upon my reporting for the past several years. I do not see it, folks. He is getting old, though, Kevin. I mean, he'll be, he'll his be sons 78 His sons aren't. His well, daughter that's is a different, That's a different story now. That's well, that, a different story. That's a good question. I mean, John, Jonathan, do you see a kind of a Trump political legacy here? Well, or, or, or think, you know, fi- go ahead. Mm-hmm. What I think one of the key variables is, and it's something we don't know, is what will conservative Republican-aligned media do if Trump, you know, assuming Trump loses, which is what it looks like is going to happen, um, will they decide to give him and his family and his strongest, you know, his, his former White House aides and all that, 
their platform or are they going to move on? And I think that that has to do with some individuals and what they think, and it has to do with some profit questions uh, with various media outlets. And I, you know, I think, yeah, that's who the key variable is. Not so much the politicians, not so much rank-and-file Republicans, but the people who make Republican-aligned media. What are they going to think? Because he's been a moneymaker for them. They may stick with him, but they may also decide to move on. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it is. And it's going to be interesting to see what the progressive media does as well, especially, you know, when you've got it should Biden ultimately win. I mean, how do they cover AOC? How do they cover the far left and the Democratic Socialist movement? I don't think we know that, Carol. No, I don't think we know that either. Right. And time will certainly tell on that. I also do think it's interesting and kind of provocative. I know reading in this morning, Kevin, I don't know if you saw it, June uh, or Jonathan, you know, this whole idea that if indeed President Trump doesn't get a second term now, does he come back in four years? Right. Which is. Which is, a, which is a possibility. I mean, we are definitely living in interesting times. And I do wonder about what is the soul of the Republican Party. Because I agree with you, Kevin, that, I mean, there's been nobody like, it feels like, Donald Trump, who has really kind of riled up the base. Yeah, also, and, 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 and I mean, about, 93%. I just keep going back to 93% yeah. approval rating amongst but Republicans. But what about all the Republicans he's lost, though, Kevin? Think about the Re- Lincoln Project and all these dyed-in-the-wool Republicans who have turned against the party because of him. But it's interesting you know, to I look at the turnout the and just see how many have been riled up and how many have come who hadn't maybe voted for years that showed up. I'm sorry, Kevin. Yeah, and I, I'll just say, I think I think that we've, we've talked a lot about the Republicans, but there's no question Democrats are going to have some party reconciliation yep. to do as well. All right, got to leave it there. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein. Check out his latest column. You can find it on the Bloomberg Terminal, of course, always at Bloomberg.com. Joining us on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.